0: You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Podcast. Episode 5? Yeah, that's episode 5, and we've got a special today on how to pronounce people's names, Chris. Uh, Yeah, so last
1: episode, I I mentioned that since tech TV is gone, that you should uh, listen to uh, Twit, This Week in Tech, and uh, also Dig. I have a couple things to say about that. First, it's not Leo Laporte. Uh, Several people have informed me that I kept mispronouncing it, and I apologize for that. It's Leo Laporte. So I uh, just want to get that out of the way. You know, Stop the email. Stop catching me on the street and saying, hey, <laughs> you're the guy who doesn't know how to pronounce his name because I, I learned. People people show me how, and I, I feel better about it. All right, so Tom, you went to uh, SakuraCon last week or yeah, last two week weeks was, ago. Yeah,
0: last episode, I was in Seattle for SakuraCon, which is the largest anime convention in the Pacific Northwest, and I had a lot of fun there. It was great. Um, I met a guy there named Michael Gluck, who goes by the name of Piano Squall, and what he does is he takes video game music arranges it for the piano, and then performs it in concert. And he's a really fun guy. He's really nice. And we're going to have an interview with him on our next show.
1: Really? Yeah. All right. We're going to have an interview with him on our next show.
0: Um, While I was there, I saw a lot of cool video game-related stuff. Uh, There were a lot of Nintendo DS and PSP import games for sale at the show. There were people dressed up as the video game characters. In fact, there was one woman who had a really good Ivy from Soul Calibur 2 costume going.
1: Yeah, I saw that on your, uh,
0: your website, Tom. Uh, maybe you want to plug that? My uh, personal website is ironmonkey.blogspot.com, and I have a bunch of uh, pictures from the show. And uh, the site that I was there to do the coverage for is the Journal of the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, and I also have a full write-up about SoccerCon there. At the show, they had video game contests. They had classic and modern console gaming, tabletop miniature gaming, collectible card gaming... Uh, Dance Dance Revolution, everything. And there was. There even got to be sort of an exhaustion factor. I went into one of the video game rooms. At it was apparent on the last podcast, I think, people are aware <laughs> how exhausted you from were. From just hearing me talk. But uh, I went in at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning to one of the video game rooms, and there were still people there who had never left. Like, they were there all night, and they were still there at 8 o'clock in the morning the next day. Were there any women there, Tom? Yeah, there were quite a few women. Actually, if you go to these uh, anime conventions, there are... Probably 50% female there. I'm going to the next anime convention. And then across the street from the convention center is a video game arcade called GameWorks. And I did find the time to go across there and check it out. Is they that owned by Paul Allen? Um, I Abol- don't know. I, I think he I started think, that, yes. I think we talked about this before, yeah. Well, it's doomed. But they <laughs> have a lot of the games that are the ones where you actually sit in the car or you know right. some kind of special controller. And there's a funny moment that happened to me over there where I, I walked up and these two girls were playing this game where you drive a Land Rover or something and you're on safari and you're supposed to sort of lasso the zebra or something like this. And I'm sort of watching over their shoulders as they're playing this. And so what happens is, you know, they drive up and the zebra's there and it looks at him and it gets real scared and runs away and they're driving after it in the Jeep. And, you know, there's this controller on the side where you throw the, the rope, the lasso and get the zebra and then you have to pull the controller to like pull the thing in. And there's something about the game that just seems really cruel and pointless. Like, why are you picking on this poor zebra that didn't do anything to you? And one of the girls turns to the other and says, you know, this is just cruel. I can't even keep playing this. I don't know if I want to play. And I had almost the same reaction myself. Like, what is the point of this game? You're just like grabbing these poor animals, and it reminds me of the fact that you know so many video games are violent and so many TV shows are violent. But there's something special about cruelty to animals that really upsets people. And I was listening to yeah, the well,
2: cruelty to humans is only I'm, I'm down with only the, deserved yeah,
0: down with the human cruelty, but animals <laughs> I cannot deal with. Well, so if you think about it, every other video game in the place, you know, you're shooting people, or people are shooting you, or you're the you way know, it should be running people over. But the the thing that makes people mad is lassoing zebras. All right, so uh, so what are we doing this time? Well, I think we got to answer some questions from our listeners, right?
1: All right. Oh, okay, we'll do that. So uh, one of the questions that we typically get uh, in email is, uh, why don't you guys do a podcast a week? We really like your podcast. We want to hear it more. Why not a uh, podcast a week?
0: It would kill us to do that, man. That's a-
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it would kill us. And, and also, when we started this podcast, just as a little bit of background, kind of our goal was to uh, to provide content. If you listen to a lot of the video game podcasts out there, you get uh, news and you get what they're playing. And, and of course, we do that as well. We wanted to really differentiate ourselves by discussing real topics, spending those two weeks going out and researching them, getting actual facts, uh, getting our thoughts together and our opinions on it, and presenting those to you, the listeners. So we really don't want to do a show a week because I think we're not going to be able to spend the time that we need uh, to discuss the topics.
2: Yeah. Right. The the news segments are actually the thing that... I would consider the first thing we'd cut if we ever had to cut something out of our show, just because that's done by a lot of people. I mean, it's relevant, it's topical, but it's done by a lot. And that wasn't the main reason we wanted to have a podcast. Right.
1: So typically what happens after our show, uh, like after we record tonight, we'll come up with a set of topics, we'll research those, and then you know during those two weeks, we'll, we'll learn a lot about it. And, and that's what we did after the last podcast. Now, why are we bringing this up? Why did we deign to answer these
0: people? Well, I think it has something to do with one of our topics this week.
1: Right. So a lot of listeners to this show I know listen to Retro Gaming Radio with uh, Shane R. Monroe. I love that show. It's one of my favorite shows. It's not a podcast, but it's one of my favorite radio-based shows to listen to. And this month, he discusses electronic distribution. And I listened to his show two days ago. Well, of course, we chose electronic distribution for our topic as well. So we had a choice. You know, we spent our time. We've researched this. We think we have some good thoughts on it. Do we go ahead and air that, or we, do we try to find something else in two days and replace it? And listening to his uh, his views on it, our views are completely different. His focus is more on retro gaming when ours is kind of on both modern and the future of retro gaming. So, uh we decided to go ahead and do that topic, but I just want to clear it up for listeners of Retro Gaming Radio that we didn't listen to his topic and copy, and we, we thought of it ahead of time. And I think if you listen to the two uh, broadcasts, you'll see that they have, we have completely different opinions in good ways and... Um, I hope you enjoy that portion. So this particular podcast, we're going to be discussing, obviously, the future of uh, video game distribution and uh, the TurboGrafx-16 and Hudson Soft. And that's kind of prompted by the fact that Nintendo made an announcement at the Game Developers Conference, the GDC, recently. And I think a lot of people knew that they were going to have this virtual console concept, which is uh, the ability to download the entire library of Nintendo NES and SNES games. And there was the rumor swelling that maybe they're going to add the ability to do Sega. Well, they added the ability to do Sega, and that was announced during the press conference. But they also added the ability to uh, get Graphics 16 games. So we're going to talk about, because a lot of people don't know what the TurboGrafx is, what it is, right. who Hudson Soft is, why they're important, and, and really why I like the system. So we'll get into that as well. And, of course, we have the second part of our Kurt Vendel interview.
0: Continued from last episode.
1: So let's go ahead and get on to episode number Cinco. Five.
0: Five. <laughs> yeah.
1: Welcome to The Rant. Today we're talking about the future of digital distribution. There's been a lot of of hype recently on this particular topic. Uh, It's been in the news, and a lot of the news, I guess, has mostly been with respect to PC games. For example, there was an article in the Washington Post recently, and here's some information from that. IDC predicts that U.S. sales of PC game downloads will almost double this year to 500 million and grow to 763 million in 2007. Uh, some that's U.S. dollars. U.S. Yeah. dollars, yeah. I'd say
2: that's conservative, anything.
1: And one of the the people that actually does a distribution, Direct to Drive, had only four publishers in 2004. Today they have over 44. So it's definitely growing at a blazing pace. Shrink wrap PC games are on the decline, a 36% drop from 2001 to 2005. So that's a lot of uh, facts with respect to PC games, but it's becoming even more of a factor today with consoles.
2: For example, uh, Peter Moore from Microsoft, a corporate VP, said in a Joystick article, and I quote, let's be fair, whether it's 5, 10, 15, or 20 years from now, the concept of driving to the store to play a pla- to buy a plastic disc with data on it and driving back and popping it in the drive will be ridiculous. We'll tell our grandchildren and they'll laugh at us. I agree. I think that's right. <laughs> uh, he, he also went on to talk about, uh, it's, not, it's not happening immediately because Microsoft still needs to play nice with their retailers um, for the time being uh, but it is inevitable.
0: And we also have an article from gameindustry.biz that uh, Dr. Jens Uwe Intat the uh, EA Say that three times fast. <laughs> the EA European VP of Sales says 10 years from now CDs, DVDs and box games will be as antiquated as cassette tapes and vinyl records. So clearly he believes or EA believes in a future where all video game content is downloaded.
1: There was also uh, an article on gamers.com that I, I had tagged for the news section, and I was reading through the news last night before the podcast, and I was like, wow, this, is a, this should really belong in our in rant. So, uh, in that gamers.com article, ABI Research reports that it expects the overall market for gaming downloads from game consoles and handhelds to grow from less than 1 million in 2005 to over 3.8 billion by 2011. Uh, they also believe that the online market for consoles will migrate from its current subscription theme model to one in which game and content sales make up the majority of revenue. So moving from right now where they're making it on a subscription to the games that you download and the content being the primary uh, factor in, in, in making money.
0: Let's talk about why game developers would be pushing for this digital distribution.
1: Well, from the PC perspective, uh, and I guess this is kind of true for consoles as well, it's really great for independent developers... Uh, they don't have to worry about shelf space. Uh, you know, a lot of games, when they initially come out, uh, they, they think about, you know, how are we going to get these on the shelves? And people may not pick them up because they don't know what the game is. So with online distribution, everybody's kind of has equal footing
0: To distribute their game, they don't
2: have to grab the attention of one of the huge behemoth publishers to get their game out. They can get it out and let it stand on its merits.
0: And also, shelf space is kind of a short term battle, sort of like a movie's opening weekend, where if something doesn't sell well in the first few weeks, it might get pulled off the shelves. And with online distribution, it can be there as long as they want it to be.
1: And something that I didn't know, and I guess it makes sense, is that uh, when you do electronic distribution, the people who are developing the games get to retain the IP rights. And apparently when you use a publisher to distribute your game, you lose all IP for that particular game that you've developed. Uh, so so it makes it harder to do future sequels and make money off, off that franchise.
0: Right. And the royalties for the developers are going to be higher too with uh, direct electronic download.
1: Yeah, I think it's like two to four times greater because they don't have to pay for packaging, shipping, and they don't have to give any other money to the publishers.
0: So I know for myself, not in the console or or PC gaming realm, but in general, like with music, I download a lot of stuff off of emusic.com. For software, not games specifically, but just software in general, I download a lot of stuff that's shareware or open source freeware. So I'm already comfortable with the convenience of an electronic download. But what is this going to really do to the console experience? So for consoles, it, uh, one of
1: the big factors, I think, that, that people are thinking about, like Microsoft, the game developers as well, is to eliminate the ability to rent and resell games. And that just means more money for the developers and, and whoever's publishing those games because people are no longer going to you know, get them secondhand. They're going to have to buy the original game if they want to play it.
0: And eliminating the used market, at least for the consumer, for people like us, for gamers, I think is a horrible thing. I mean, part of the reason that the game scene is so exciting and interesting is you can go and buy a used game that you might not be able to afford to buy new. You can buy a game and take a chance on it, knowing that you can sell it back used if you don't like it,
2: right? Well, and also, I think a lot of people just use the renting model to evaluate what games they'd want to get. It's kind of the, the fight that the music industry's been in, and they find that the people who download the most illegal downloads of music also tend to be the people who buy the most CDs, and I think that's an illegal market, so I don't know what, the, you know, not saying good or bad about that, but in the rental, in the game market, at least I, for one, tend to rent every game before I go out and buy it, just to see if I actually want to buy it.
1: Right, and kind of a hidden thing that you don't hear much is it's it's really good for Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo because they're kind of the sole provider, whereas in the PC market you have all these different, like, direct-to-drive, there's other services that you can buy PC games from, but when it comes to consoles, you're single-sourced, so it's only Microsoft that's going to be delivering 360 games, it's only Nintendo that's going to be, uh, whatever they're going to name their next console, the Revolution <laughs> or what, it's only Sony going to be doing the PS3, so uh, it's just a totally different market, and that's that's really what scares the heck out of me.
2: Well, and I know initially a lot of people might say, well, that's not really an issue because right now Microsoft gets to license anyone who puts games on the Xbox. But the fact is that the publishers at least do have some leverage against Microsoft to fight for different things, whereas if the publishers are cut out of the system altogether, it's completely Microsoft that gets to make all those calls. There's no one who has leverage against them.
1: So I, I wrote down some things you know, during the last two weeks since our last podcast we came up with this topic, some, some of my opinions on this. So I think it does make sense for PC games uh, because rentals were always kind of a gray area with PC games. That's there was right. like the piracy was- issue and stuff like that, but for consoles that, that, that really is an issue. But for PC games it's, it's always been sort of a gray area. But I really do, even on the PC side, miss going to the store and seeing the different uh, different boxes. I, when we were growing up, I remember going to the mall, walking in to the the uh, computer store, and seeing tons of games all over with these different boxes. I remember buying the Ultima series, and you get like a cloth map that you
2: take out. Exactly. Yeah. Getting the cloth map in Ultima Three was still one of my greatest gaming memories. And a lot
0: of those old games, especially, had some really cool extras that would come in the box. Some of the Infocom games had a whole host of different clues and, and, and extra gizmos that would come in the box. It was cool. It was fun. So while I understand on the PC side
1: and I'm more accepting of it, I think on the console side, it's horrendous. Why do I think that? Well, for one thing, consoles have really always been plug and play, and that's what differentiated them, at least for me, from PCs. When I think about PC gaming, maybe it's just because I grew up in an era where it was very complex. I think of debugging the sound, getting the video drivers right. Am I running at the right resolution? Is it running at the fastest speed? Let me tweak this setting.
0: Is it compatible with my video card? Do I have enough memory? Do I have enough disk space? And a lot of those things are still (laughs) true
1: today, right? So with the console, it's always been you buy it, you plug it in, it works. Uh, My grandmother can probably get a console to work. Right. (laughs) But. In the future, if everything's electronic distribution, it's like the console, and I mean everybody's seeing this, is becoming the PC. And it's gonna be as complex. You know, you're not gonna have the video driver issues, but now you've got a network thing you've gotta set up. You take it home, you gotta download something. I remember all the people that were upset with the Half Life Two thing, they had to go they bought it and then they had to spend the next, you know, four hours downloading the game. How would that be for every single game that you wanna play?
2: Well and I think also a lot of the ease of use or the polish of The console system games isn't even just the hardware or the the operating system compared to PCs. It's also the fact that with a console, the game publishers have to put out a DVD and it goes out and it has to be perfect. So they are obligated, forced to test these things to no end to make sure that it's absolutely perfect before it goes out, and whereas we'll talk about one of the games, not so perfect ones later in yes. this in this show. <laughs> but whereas with PC games, the marketing department or whatever could just say, "Oh, let's ship it as is, and we'll fix it later." And so on the PC, you always deal with that. Oh, I got to go download the next patch for Quake, you know, to connect to the servers to get it right or bug after bug. Whereas with the consoles, you knew that those that QA had to be perfect before it went out. So it just added to the polish of just being able to plug in those games and have it work
1: exactly. And obviously, you know, like Woody, I I really like renting games. I've been downloading the demos, and I'll talk about that as well, because being in Mexico, I got a ton of demos I was able to download, which was cool, but it's only one level or one aspect of the game. And when I want to evaluate whether I'm going to spend now $60 to buy a game, I want to have a chance of playing that game for real. So I want to be able to rent it. I want to be able to buy stuff secondhand for cheaper and that's not going to be an option if everything goes to electronic distribution. Right.
2: And I'm sure that's going to be the the publisher's and the creator's argument is that, oh, you don't need rentals anymore, we'll just do demos all the time. But it's not the same.
1: And just to uh, talk about this again, the, the thing that really scares me the most about the console electronic distribution is that that distribution is controlled by very few individuals. It's controlled by Microsoft, it's controlled by Sony, and it's controlled by Nintendo. It's not a bunch of competing companies that are distributing PC games where I can... Or even like you know, say the analogy of MP3s, right? Where you can go and you might be able to download it from one service or another service. You can't do that with console games. You're single sourced. So a lot of people know, uh, and I mean from listening to the show, that I'm very into retro games. So I like going back and playing games. I like playing games on my 2600. So you might ask, you know, what does that have to do this topic?
0: Well, what's going to happen when these games are the retro games? When we're right, when we're older, <laughs> and yeah. we look back to today and say, "I want to play those games that I played way back when on the Xbox 360."
1: Yeah. So imagine kids today who are just into Geometry Wars. They think this is the greatest game ever. Thirty years go by, which, or maybe twenty years, we'll say twenty <laughs> years go by. Uh, they sold their 360, but now they want to rediscover their their youth. So uh, so they go to garage sale, they pick up their 360, uh, they pick it up for ten bucks. Which I, I think is a good deal, right? Yeah, probably a good deal. So, uh, so they pick this up, they take it home, they plug it in. They're like, man, I love Geometry Wars. I'm gonna play Geometry Wars, and they find out that you know Microsoft stopped producing consoles at the Microsoft 1080. You know, with the <laughs> 1080, they said, you know, we're not making any money. We're getting killed by Nintendo. We're getting killed by Sony. We're not
0: gonna do video game consoles anymore. So I think your point is, where are they going to download Geometry Wars from when when the one distributor has decided to stop distributing it? Yeah,
1: there's no way to get Geometry Wars. I can't get it on disc because it never existed on disc. Now, we're talking about Xbox Live Arcade, but take it five years down the road. Every game is going to be distributed that way. How am I going to get those games if those companies that were the only distributors of it go out of business and no longer produce games.
0: Or even if they're still in business and they've decided to stop distributing those games because they'd rather that you pony up the money for their newest game.
2: Right, because I know there's a lot of debate inside some of these companies sometimes about releasing these retro games because there are a lot of them are worried about these retro ones competing with their new releases that are the real money makers. I guess,
1: you know, the conclusion is they are for PC gaming, it seems like it, it makes sense uh, in some respect, but for consoles, there's a lot of, a lot of issues. But, but what does that mean for the future? What do you guys think?
0: Well, it seems to me like we're making a distinction between electronic distribution in general, maybe on the Internet model where anybody can have a website and distribute anything they want, versus electronic distribution with a single source, single distributor. You can only download what they let you. And I think those are two different things. I love the convenience of electronic downloads of content. But do I want to tie myself to only being able to download from one source? And I think that's the part that's scary.
2: And yeah, and if you look around now, you'll say, well, you don't need to even, you know, find an old Atari and old cartridges to be able to play the games because they release these retro gaming collections. But I think a lot of the reason they're doing that now is that they there is a black market for these things they've seen the main people download the illegal roms so they say oh why don't we just release these and we'll make the money off it in the future if people if there is no black market possible there's going to be they're not going to realize there's a market for these things so anyone arguing oh but they released their classics now and you could just play them they're doing that now but that's no guarantee it'll be there in the future
1: so what does that mean to people what should we do
2: Well, I think it's inevitable, but I have a pessimistic outlook on life. (laughs) So you listeners, if you have any ideas on what could be done, why don't you come to our forums and tell us? And then we'll tell you what's wrong with your ideas. But no, no, no. But really, I don't think any of us have an answer, and it's something we'd like to know.
1: I just think we need to start hacking the 360.
2: (laughs) Not illegally, though, folks. Respect the law.
1: (laughs) Alright, so I am not real happy about it. And I'm not sure exactly what we can do about it, but uh but we gotta go on with the podcast. We gotta pretend like uh, We
2: gotta keep going on in life.
1: Keep on going on, as it were, and move on to our uh, to our gaming moments.
2: Life continues. Welcome to the Gaming Moments.
0: Chris, tell us about some of your Gaming Moments for this show.
1: Alright, well, uh, I was in Mexico uh, a couple weeks ago. Returned, didn't have the 360. Uh, Woody had uh, held it hostage. Finally got it back from Woody. (laughs) After a nice ransom. And uh, it was like almost orgasmic. To, to load up the 360, i got <laughs> to say.
0: And to get were, it back yeah. back in your possession, in your, in your clammy little hands. Right. Well, the best part was <laughs> I
1: went on, and there were so many marketplace demos. I was like, ooh, look at all the demos. i got to download this, got to download that. So a lot of my— It was uh, a
0: cornucopia of demos. It was.
1: So uh, one of the demos I downloaded was Burnout Revenge. And you might say, hey, isn't that the same game that's on the Xbox and the PSP? Well, isn't it? Pretty much. It's the same game that's on the Xbox and the PSP. But the graphics and sound really differentiate. And the sound is kind of what I found was, was awesome. I've been playing the single level they give you, but I, I'm pretty, pretty stoked. I'm, I'm thinking about buying it. I mean, believe it or not, I didn't finish it on the PSP, so I'm thinking I might buy it for the 360 and give it a shot and, and try to complete it because, man... The graphics and sound on the game are awesome. I mean, it's just it's just like you're really driving, dude. It's and the explosions are great. So I'm thinking well, I'm, I'm a
0: fan gonna... of the series. I played it on PS2, so maybe I'll have to look at that or at least try the demo. Yeah.
2: I learned everything I needed to know about driving from that game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was your driver's ed course. Was Burnout.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I've
0: also been
1: playing Battlefield 2 on the 360. I've played it on the uh, on the Xbox and on the PC, but I got to say I'm having quite a bit of fun with it on the on the 360.
0: When I played that game on the PS2, they have the hot swapping where you jump into the other body and everything, and that was kind of cool at first, but overall, I didn't think that was a game that I would play for the long term. Is it more fun on the 360?
1: Well, I haven't really played it for the long term, so I can't really uh, respond to your question, But, but I can say this, that I've played it, I really enjoy that game because of the cooperative modes, like... I like getting in a tank with uh, two other people and going mm-hmm. out and blasting people. Yeah. And I like I like jumping in the helicopter with a bunch of people. It's just cool to be playing right alongside these people and feel like you're fighting this war. It's just it's really cool. The thing I would say is some people have said, oh, it's just like the PC game. It's not just like the PC game. One of the best parts about the PC game for me was the planes. I, I'd jump mm-hmm. in the plane. I'd go to the carrier. I'd take people out. It's pretty hard to fly planes in the PC game. Have you, ever, have you ever tried that? No, I haven't. It's, it's kind of a challenge, but once you get the plane up and flying, dude, it's like a rush. It's like a totally different game when you're flying around, and you don't really have that in a 360. All you got's a helicopter, which is pretty fun. I guess it's pretty fun flying the helicopter, but I really do miss playing with the planes.
0: Is it like flying in the uh, Star Wars Battlefronts on the hot level?
1: Hey, I don't know about that, Tom. Hmm. I can't I respond to that, but I, I can say that I, I do enjoy it. It's almost like a different game uh, on the PC but you don't have any in that 360, so that's kind of a disappointment. Haven't really decided if I'm going to buy the game or not. Have to wait and see. Uh, so uh, since I'm still able to rent games, I'm sure I won't be do- able to do that five years from now. I also rented a couple games. <laughs> and what were those? Uh, I rented Elder Scrolls IV: Oblivion.
0: Right, Oblivion.
1: Because you said it was so great last episode, I had to run out and get it. Because you said it, boy, this is the greatest game ever. So so I went out and rent- rented it. Unfortunately, you don't get the uh, manual when you rent it from Blockbuster. So I had to go online and try to kind of figure stuff out. So I'm still working on the whole character building, leveling up thing. I, I, I have progressed a couple levels, but I did close an Oblivion Gate, and it was a lot of fun. I just, I'm having fun playing the game. I think it's a great game. I'm kind of getting lost in the world, and, and time does actually fly when I'm playing the game. So, so it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know. I think I'm probably going to buy it just because, if nothing else, I want the manual to see what's going on. And I know I'm not going to be able to complete the game in the time that I'm renting it. The other uh, technique I've been using on Oblivion, unlike Tom, who has only uh, tried to do the little side quests and uh, wandered around and hasn't gotten any gamer points, I'm following the main Mm -hmm. mission, so I have closed an Oblivion gate, and I did get my points for that. I really don't have time to walk around the world. I think it's cool, but as far as the way I play that game, it's like I'm just looking to finish the game. I'm following along the main quest, and that's kind of my goal.
2: Chris is the Terminator of game players.
1: I am. Oh, I don't have time, dude. There's too many games. Too many games. So, the other game that I rented was Far Cry Instincts Predator for the 360. Have you heard about that, Tom?
0: Yeah.
2: In fact, I played the
0: Far Cry Instincts on the PC.
2: I've heard a lot of good things about the Far Cry series. I've been curious to try those. How was it? Uh,
0: It was kind of like playing the Xbox
1: version, but with better graphics. And the graphics weren't that much better.
2: So since I've never played, that means nothing to me. But is It's, it it's a
1: shooter. You know, it's a shooter. It's kind of you cool. You sneak through the jungle. You the, sneak up on yeah, people. I think that's the big, biggest difference is you're in the jungle. I do like the fact that when in some of the buildings you get on your back. You know, when you walk around, you shoot up. So that's kind of an interesting concept that I haven't seen in a lot of other FPSs. So you're doing a lot of weird things like that. The one thing that I would say about it is it, it has a lot of profanity. And it's not really necessary, so it's almost like the game is pushing a little bit too hard to to, to get it to, to be cool. Yeah, cool to be cool. kind of like a middle schooler. So I didn't really see the need for it, but like right off right off the bat, you get a couple f bombs thrown. I was like, it seemed a little unnecessary. It's not. I mean, for me, it's not a big deal, but for other people who might be playing it, I just thought it was a little bit
2: over the top. It, it, game programmers, if you're going to be gratuitous about something, make it nudity, not profanity.
1: <laughs> I've been playing it. I'm not really that impressed. I'm definitely not going to buy it. It's probably a good game, but I've seen it before on the Xbox, so it wasn't really anything different to me. I've also been playing... I picked up Daxter for the PSP.
0: I've heard that's good.
1: It actually is pretty good. Uh, it's it's a lot like the Jack and Daxter series, but on the PSP. Which I loved. And I PS2. loved the Jack and Daxter. Yeah, I yeah. finished
0: the first two of those games. They are very good. I never got around to version 3.
1: And the graphics are really good. The gameplay is good. It's, it's almost too good, because when I'm playing it, I'm like... I really should be playing this on a console.
0: But what about the PSP controller? Does it work for a game like this?
1: I haven't had a problem with it. It seems to work fine. Uh, I think they did a pretty good job with the camera. The game is fun. It's addictive. But like I say, it's it's playing a platformer on the PSP, which to me doesn't make a lot of sense when they keep trying to compress these platform games to a handheld. I mean, I know I bought the game, so (laughs) I should have known what I was getting into, but then now that I play it, I'm like... This is so long to clear levels, and it just feels like a platformer that should be playing this on a console. So. Right,
2: because the point of a lot of those platformers is to, is to demonstrate the capabilities of the platform it's coming out on. So you port it to something like the PSP, it loses something. So you're yeah.
0: saying you want a more bite-sized you know, dip into the sort of a game? Yeah, I'm not
1: really sure what I want, Tom. But, and Maybe <laughs> it's just that I miss my Nintendo DS and I can't wait until the new one comes out. So I'm I going pick that be up because I think that's a big difference between the PSP and the DS. The PSP was all about bringing console games to a handheld experience and having these upgraded graphics and, and we really should rant on this in, in a future episode. But my opinion on that is the reason Nintendo DS is winning is they're building games that are for a handheld. They're shorter games, they're simple games, they're pick-up-and-go games. It's kind of like Exit on the PSP. I like that game because it fits that. When I gave a game like Daxter, although I think it's fun and I'm probably going to play it all the way through, it really shouldn't be a handheld game because it isn't really built for that type of uh, experience where it's like on-the-go gaming.
2: Well, I can definitely see how they missed the focus on the PSP because they also tried to make it a movie platform, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard isn't turning out too well. No, not at all.
0: Well, the UMD movies are not, but as a platform to watch um, MP4 movies, the PSP is pretty good. The screen is nice, it's bright, it's great for taking on an airplane, so I like it for that.
2: But that's what Nintendo's always done well. With everything they've done, they know what their target is, and they hit it. And it may not be the the extreme do-everything that the other systems are, but Nintendo always hits what they're aiming for.
1: Okay, so the other thing I'm playing is the Tomb Raider Legend demo. Got that, downloaded it. Not for the 360. I downloaded it for the PC because the 360 demo wasn't up yet. It's it's pretty good, i got to say. Uh, it's enjoyable. It reminds me a lot of Prince of Persia. The graphics are good, although there are some oddities in the graphics. Like, it'll look like a total natural environment, and then this vine will be oddly colored. Of course, it's a thing you need to grab and swing on. So So it kind
0: of stands out.
1: Yeah, and I don't know why they did that. I'd almost rather have it look like the scenery and have you figure out that it's a vine that you can jump (laughs) on. But but instead they kind of make it really apparent. So it kind of breaks up the reality of the game. But overall, it's it's a pretty fun. It's to help
0: out gamers who don't pay attention.
1: And they also have this auto aiming feature. That's it's just to me, it's a little bit too simplistic. So it looks like they're trying to make it really approachable. And Accessible. in and in a way, I guess that's good. But in a way, for me, it was a little bit over the top. So it's a cool game. I'm going to download on the 360 at least a demo and see what it's like. And uh, and hopefully, if it's if it's good, I'm going to go ahead and buy it. All right. So Tom, what have you been playing lately?
0: Well, you may recall from the. Past episode when I was talking about Elder Scrolls Oblivion, I was so excited about it. And I just yeah, thought it based was on the- your review, I bought copies for my whole family. <laughs> I went out and rented
1: it, and I- I'm going to buy it, Tom, because I just want to thank you for uh, for really building that game up. Because uh, without that, I doubt I would have gone out and-, and gone out of my genre to to play an RPG. So I, I-, I just want to thank you <laughs> from the bottom of my heart. Thanks.
0: Well, here's the problem, guys. Thanks again. I I loved this game at first. I really did. I thought it was going to redefine the genre. I thought it was going to be the killer app for the 360. And it does. And then I got a little further into it, and I discovered that this game is a buggy, buggy, buggy piece of crap that constantly crashes. And... You know, I would go into a town, and it would crash, and I'd have to reset the 360, and and I'd restore from a save point, and go back into a building, and it would crash again. And then I'd get on my horse, and it would crash, and I'd go to a new town, and it would crash. And it just got to the point where I don't want to have the kind of experience where I have to save every one minute because the game's about to crash next time I try to do something. It's just ridiculous. I mean, I think this game... It had so much potential to be great. It had so much potential to be the coolest game on the 360, but it's just buggy. They released it before they had gotten the bugs fixed, and it just... I, I don't think I can remember playing a game that is locked up and crashed that many times on a console ever. It's so weird,
1: because I've been playing the game, I have more achievements than you do, and I've never had it lock up, so are you sure it's not a
0: 360? I'm sure it's not my 360, because no other game on the 360 has done that. It's only Oblivion, and... I'll tell you what happened. I actually returned this game to the store and got my money back. And when I returned it to the store and I complained and said, this game's constantly crashing, I can't play it for more than about 15 minutes, the guy at the store said that that was a common complaint that they'd had from a lot of other people, it wasn't just me, and that this was the only game where they'd gotten that level of complaints. So I really think that this game was just released too soon before it was really fixed and really working it's really a shame. I wish it were the game it could have been, but I'm not going to have the patience to play a game that freezes up every time I go into a new
2: environment or talk to a new character. Well, luckily, I was lying about buying it for my whole family. So, uh, good, good. The, that, guess, that makes me feel a lot better. I guess between Chris and Tom, <laughs> the jury's still out on
1: that? No, I, I haven't had a problem yet. i got to say it's been, it's been running great for me. Of course, I guess the difference between Tom and myself and playing this game is I'm goal-oriented, where Tom just is wandering around. I'm thinking maybe they put something in the game that said if you just wander around and you don't do anything, they're going to make it lock up.
0: But Chris, the whole point of this game is it's this open-ended environment where you're supposed to be able to do anything. Like, Why would you buy a game like that and then say, I'm only going to do this very linear series of quests where I go to the next thing the next thing? That's not the point of the game. Why have that big open-ended world if all you're going to be able to do without the game crashing is go to the next goal?
2: Speaking of open world and flexibility, I will say I became the most intrigued by this game because today... I'm managed to see on the internet someone had made a video i think it's available on youtube you guys can probably find it out there but it was a video of a, pro- a player who had created a character that looked exactly like chuck norris and he ran around <laughs> no, the world good. fighting with his bra- bare knuckles and he created this great soundtrack to it um it, just phenomenal video it was wonderful it made me fascinated i wanted to try the game just so i could repeat what he'd done <laughs>
1: the interesting thing about that woody is, is i saw that as well and, and when I read the article, the guy kept stating how many times it locked up on him to, to record that, and it well, took see, it too much. See? That's I'm, what I'm talking I'm about. I'm just kidding, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> all so, right. So, Chuck wait. Norris now, see, awesome. I, I think you guys Dude, are taking over
0: my crashed. gaming moment here, because oh, okay. I'm not done with my moment. I'm sure yeah. our listeners are very excited to hear the rest of your moment. The rest of my moment is, you know, now that I've discovered that I've paid 60 bucks for this game that doesn't even work right and that crashes all the time. It made me stop and think about how much money I've been spending on games, which is too much. I've been spending a lot more money than I should on buying every new game that looks cool that comes out for the 360 or the PSP or the PS2. And so I decided that I have to change my ways, and I need to start renting games more. So I just signed up for Gamefly, and I'm going to be renting a lot more games.
1: Well, that'll, that'll be good for the two years that you can still rent games,
2: Tom.
0: Well, I hope that doesn't come up to come to pass the way that you predict, but it'll at least be good for me for the short term. All right, so Woody, what about you?
2: Uh, I've actually Woody uh, has a gaming moment. Woody has a gaming moment. I know. Breaking news. <laughs> I, my, I, I'll start out by saying I would not have normally bought this, but my wife is a big Disney fan, and so I went out. Who isn't? And, well, that's debatable. I gotta say <laughs> I got a problem with Disney. Personal, it's personal. Mr. Disney killed Did my grandfather. Did you have a bad experience
0: with Mickey or something? When Donald
2: Duck maybe attacked you when you went to uh, Disneyland? What's the well, deal? Actually, Walt Disney killed my grandfather, <laughs> so it's, it's a personal family vendetta. But, yeah. <laughs> so Hate it when that happens. I went out and I bought both the Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2. Those are good. And, awesome. Yeah, the first one, anyway. Have good. you got
1: to Tron yet? That's the only thing I care about. I have
2: not. I'll go into that. I, the first thing I'll say is I was really nervous about buying this game. But have you got to Tron yet? It's made by the same people who did the Final Fantasy. And I'll probably Which is get, a good thing. I'll probably get flack for this, but I really hate the Final Fantasy games.
0: Oh, how can you say that? I mean, I, here we're a gaming show. You hate Final Fantasy. I know. It, I have a problem
2: the with... The guy
1: who loves all RPGs hates Final
2: Fantasy. I have a problem Fantasy. with the turn-based combat. Oh, okay. It really bothers me. So... But I, this game was good. It didn't have the same thing. I really am enjoying it so far. The problem is, I still haven't seen any Disney characters, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just not. I guess I'm just not far enough in, but it's taking forever to get going. So I, I like the game so far. It's really good. Drew's still a little out just because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen exactly what I bought it for.
1: So, so the deal is, I, I read a lot about this uh, in in various gaming publications. And it looks cool. Like I saw the Tron characters, which totally I was totally into. Oh, and yeah, I saw all looks, the other. It you know, looks like great. the The black black and white Mickey Mouse. You know what, what was that called? The um, Steamboat Willie. Whatever. Yeah, Steamboat yeah. Willie. Yeah. So that, that looks really cool. But I just don't get the game. Can you explain it to me? Because I've never played either of them.
2: I, I it's a very dreamlike story, uh, with. People going in and out of realities, and I think it's like it's kind of a multi-dimension thing. Basically, I'm playing this character who clearly seems to be living in a virtual reality. It's so kind of like the like Matrix. He's kind of like it seems to be, and I, obviously, I don't know the whole story. I think I'm very near the beginning, so I'll probably be corrected. But it seems the main character is much like Neo in The Matrix. He's living in this virtual reality world, and people are manipulating him, and he's trying to break out of it and get his memories back. So we'll see where it goes, but it's a very dreamlike thing. I don't know how they're going to tie in all these Disney stories. I have no idea how that will be explained, (laughs) but I'm curious to find out. It's been – it's done – I was very skeptical of the premise, but it's – been done very well as much as i've seen so that's it
1: on to the news
2: news you can use
0: to the news. Take it away, Tom.
2: News to feed your
0: blues. So the FTC has found that there's a decline in M-rated game sales to kids. Yay! And they did some undercover work where they would send people in to shop undercover and they found that in the year 2000, about 85% of the time, underage shoppers could buy M-rated games. And then, then that went down to 69% in 2003. And now, now, what do you think the percentage is at, Woody?
2: If it was 85, I bet they're cheering it as a success because it's 83.
0: No, no, it's 42 now. 42%. <laughs> Which
2: is still high.
0: I think it's high, so almost half the time an underage person <laughs> can buy an M-rated game. But still, it's better than 83% or 85%. Fight the power, people. Fight the power. So, uh, yeah, it's getting better. It's improving. So we've talked about this before, Chris, that some of the game ratings don't make a whole lot of sense. Because in a game like Call of Duty 2, that's rated T for teen, but it's like constant, constant killing. Right, yeah. You know? So I'm not sure those ratings are all that accurate. But still, I guess it's a good sign that uh, M-rated games being sold to minors is on the decline. So the thing that was
1: interesting also is that they found a disparity in, in where the ratings were being enforced. And I guess this, this completely makes sense, but that they found that national resellers were about 35% uh, of the time they were selling to, uh, to underage versus 63% of the local resellers of games. So. so
0: that means, kids, if you want to score the M-rated content, go to the local mom-and-pop right. store and uh, you'll have a better shot there.
1: Better shot at the local mom-and-pop all right, so 2K Inc.'s massive ad deal. This this com- comes from GameSpot. And apparently Massive Incorporated, which we talked about, was that last episode or the episode before? I don't even remember anymore. When we talked about Fight Night. Fight Night 3, that's right, mm-hmm. and advertising video games. But uh, Massive Incorporated, a company that specializes in in-game advertising and 2K Sports, publishers of Major League Baseball 2K6, have announced a deal to put in-game ads in MLB 2K6. So, uh, Steve Glickenstein, or is it Glickstein? Glickstein. Glickstein. Vice President of Licensing for 2K Sports says, quote, Sports games are ideal vehicles for in-game advertising as advertising adds an element of realism to the experience for gamers. So, what do you guys think of this? Another, another company inking a deal with, uh, with Massive to uh, put ads in their games.
2: Well, I agree that it's perfect for sports titles because I hate sports titles anyway. So, I think <laughs> those people who play them should suffer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, great logic, Woody. Yeah. Well, but
0: it is, it's is—it's true that it does add a bit of realism since you would see ads in the real sports broadcast.
2: Yes, it's much better than, say, putting advertising right. in a fantasy game. I'm
1: just hoping that the ads that they put in are not like Fight Night and so blatant and out of place. Like, there are certain uh, ads that you do see at, at baseball games, so hopefully they, they follow along and have the same kind of companies and and it does deliver a more realistic experience. Otherwise, I'd rather just not see ads
0: in games. So, Nintendo's annual profit is the biggest since the year 2001, and a lot of people were skeptical about the Nintendo DS. It was gimmicky, two screens and a stylus. For the financial year ending March 31st, the company took in 95 billion yen, which is about 807 million American dollars in net income, an 8.7% rise from the previous financial year. The earnings beat Nintendo's own forecast, which called for a 14% drop in earnings for the year. Now, why would they have forecast a drop in earnings, do you think? That's kind of strange.
2: Set expectations low and then beat them. You always make people happy.
0: But, yeah, Nintendo, I think they know what they're doing. They've always gotten a lot of money off of the Game Boy, Game Boy Advance series, and now the DS. Um, they're really pretty unbeatable in the portable market.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think they predicted that the DS would do do as well as it has, and that's probably why they had the lower financial forecast. But it's it's just done amazing... Uh, it is winning the handheld battle. I have to say, it's it's really is beating the PSP. I, I like my PSP, but uh, the Nintendo—they just they know what to produce for a particular platform. They they're not trying to be everything for everybody, as Woody said earlier, and that's why they're why I think they're making money. And they, I think they're going to continue to make
2: money. They might have been giving Sony more credit than they deserve, thinking the PSP would be more successful and take a bite out of theirs. Whereas it's clear that they are destroying the PSP.
0: All right, what else is going on? So. Microsoft is going to relaunch the Xbox 360 in Japan in June. Now, of course, we all know that their original launch in Japan was somewhat of a disaster. Successful. A disaster. Oh, okay, maybe, yeah. Uh, so they're going to give it another try. Um, they're going to come up with some new titles. Uh, Sega's Chromehounds, uh, Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter, and Spectral Force 3 Innocent Rage. And AQ's Interactive's Bullet Witch. So I guess the
1: argument there is that when the Xbox initially launched, the 360 initially launched, they didn't have a lot of launch titles that appealed to the Japanese audience. So they think, now, we're going to reintroduce a console. We've got these games that were really slated for the initial, uh, initial part of the release. But, uh, but weren't there. So now we're going to re-release it with these games that people want that appeal to the Japanese audience. So do you guys think that's going to be uh, successful?
0: Well, from this list of games, most of these games are not even by Japanese developers. They don't seem particularly like games that would appeal to the Japanese audience. So I'm not sure what they're thinking, except that they've got to make another try because they've lost the battle for the Japanese market and they've got to try to regain it somehow. Yeah, the funny thing
1: about it is even now the console is only selling about 1,000 units a week. And that's about the same volume as the as the GameCube in Japan, which is pretty sad if you consider what's come out for the GameCube recently.
0: That is sad.
2: Pathetic,
1: really.
0: So for those of you still playing Oblivion, <laughs> unlike me, tell us what's new in that world.
1: All right, so like I said, I I rented Oblivion, and I couldn't figure out what to do. I I figured out a bit of what to do, but I wanted to know a a bit more about how to play the game. So I searched around, and I found IGN is doing this daily updated Oblivion game guide. I guess most of the time, IGN, what they do is they wait until they complete a game, and then they publish a game guide. But because Oblivion's so huge, what they've done is they've started to develop this uh, game guide, and they update it daily, so you can go there and get information... uh, you know, on a daily basis as, as they update the guide. And I've used that. It's it's pretty good. Uh, I've been getting a lot of information from that. The other cool thing is they have this uh, interactive character builder. So it allows you to kind of put in all the attributes that you would select in Oblivion. And it basically tells you whether your character is going to be good or suck. So it, it's useful in setting up your character, seeing if, if the way you're setting up your character uh, is going to work for you in the future, if it's going to be good for the game. And they also have... Uh, several walkthroughs people are playing the game they're posting their walkthroughs as they go so for me i've used that a bit on the main quest to make sure i'm going the right way it's a useful guide if you guys are playing oblivion and you don't want to spend a a lot of time like tom walking around and having the game freeze up on you it'll help (laughs) you go through the game it's not going to tell you how to do everything obviously but you'll be able to get hints as far as whether you're following the right path to to complete the main mission
0: so what you're saying chris is when the game finally crashes on you you'll at least have a better character
1: you have a good character, and you also, I think,
2: be farther along in getting your gamer points, Tom. <laughs> so there's an article on joystick. dot com, the title of which is "Games Make Kids Fat, Nympho, Chain Smoking Alcoholics." Yeah, it makes sense. Well, there you have it. And apparently, I think it was from newscientist.com dot com originally. Yeah. That's the world's number one science and technology news service, Woody. Apparently, apparently. Uh, There was a study concluding that television and video game exposure should, quote, be viewed as a major public health issue and, like cigarettes, these media should come with a health warning, end quote. In fact, such excess childhood exposure can, quote, increase obesity, tobacco, and alcohol use, risky sexual behaviors, violence, and social isolation. Now, this falls into one of my pet peeves in life. I believe they've fallen for one of the logical fallacies, specifically confusing correlation with causation. What that means is uh, they've watched kids play video games, and then these kids tend to have more increased obesity, tobacco and alcohol use, sexual behaviors, violence, or whatever. But the the point is that it's not the video games necessarily that are causing this. It's more likely that kids who are predisposed to risky behaviors both have those problems later in life and enjoy playing video games more. If you're the boring kid who's never going to have any of these risky behaviors, you're probably also less likely to play video games. Because
0: you're going to be in the library studying.
2: Right. So it's not the video games causing this that's ridiculous. It, video games are just one of the things that people who engage in these risky behaviors do and rant mini rant. So
1: apparently the, uh, I think a lot of our listeners have have probably heard the story that these girls got arrested because they placed these Mario boxes around a town in Ohio uh, prior to April Fool's.
0: Yeah, they made some boxes that looked like the question mark boxes that you jump into in Mario Brothers, and they hung them from various places in the town so that it kind of made it look like the town was a level of Super Mario. Sort of a cute idea, kind of a funny little prank. And there were instructions on the
2: internet that they followed. This wasn't even their idea.
0: Yeah, so apparently the authorities did not take too kindly to these mysterious boxes is being placed around and the bomb squad was summoned and i guess uh, there was a new story that they were going to be arrested
1: right but we can all sleep easy now because it's it's been found that these girls will not be prosecuted the county prosecutor had to say quote the girls were imitating an art project which they found on the internet the prosecutor said none of the girls had any prior contacts with the police or a juvenile in court and are all good students so i guess being a good student will help you not get arrested tom
0: that's great that's everybody good. out there keep studying
1: Keep studying. You won't get arrested, even if you make Mario boxes and deliver them all around your town and have the bomb <laughs> squad called. All right. So this is a final story. It's actually a set of stories that were given to us from one of our forum members, Craig. I think it's Craik or Craik. Yeah, K R A E K. Anyway, post to our forums. He post our forums and he even sent me some uh, voice messages over Xbox Live. And I and I encourage other people to do that as well because. Uh, because you might get your stories read on uh, on the next Twitch Time Video Game Radio. So anyway, one thing he told me about was that uh, Verizon had that uh, free Xbox Live weekend. Uh, you guys hear about that?
0: Yeah, we get uh, gamer points.
1: They had the gamer points, and also there was a free Xbox Live for the for apparently for the weekend. And Craig was telling me that uh, apparently a couple of people found a loophole in this process, and they'd like loaded up on a ton of gamer points. <laughs> so it doesn't look like a Microsoft is doing a real good job protecting that
0: so there are people out there you look at their gamer card they have a million points now or something no
1: this is for purchasing tom this is this is not for uh that would be great i would totally be (laughs) into that because i'd be way ahead of you but no this is for purchasing things online so it's kind of crazy that they didn't have enough security to restrict people from uh from getting multiple times getting those points from from verizon so kind of crazy The other thing that uh, he posted to our forum, and and I appreciate it because we got a ton of hits from other people linking to us, cross-linking to our site, is that, uh, that whole Microsoft card
0: fiasco. Yeah, that was so funny.
1: Apparently, you can just go in and enter somebody else's name and get their gamer card sent to them. Their, is it the Platinum card? Platinum gamer card? Is that what they call
0: it? Diamond, I think. Diamond, so was, The yeah, diamond level.
1: Yeah, the diamond play, uh, card. Apparently, if, if somebody has purchased the high enough uh, level of Xbox Live, you can just go in there and type in their name, and all of a sudden, they'll get this in the mailbox. <laughs> their diamond card. Uh, but what's even better is a uh, is Craig apparently uh, looked at his, his card that they showed, and uh, there's misspelling.
0: It was great. It says valid Trahoo. And instead of saying valid through for 2007, it says valid Trahoo. So, it, through is spelled T R H U.
1: Yes. And I guess that's already been sent out on the cards to, to millions of people. <laughs> right. That's quality. Yeah. Microsoft quality through and through. A. Trahoo and
0: Trahu. They're not
1: able to stop people <laughs> from getting the gamer uh, points. Or the points for uh, purchase in, in uh, Xbox well, Live. To
2: be fair, we know Microsoft's always had a problem with
1: security. Oh, very true, even in the OS. <laughs> Maybe that's why the uh, next OS is being delayed. So we want to thank Craig for uh, submitting those stories. And we're on to the retro respect section.
3: Retro.
2: Respect the retro.
1: This time we're talking about the TurboGrafx 16 and the company Hudson, Hudson Soft from Japan. We chose this topic for a couple reasons. One, as we talked about it earlier, the Revolution is going to have the ability to download TurboGrafx 16 games. And I've talked to a lot of gamers, uh, maybe that weren't around back when the TurboGrafx 16 was out or didn't have a TurboGrafx 16. They're like, well, why do I even care about the TurboGrafx 16? So I thought that we'd have a segment kind of talk about the history and some of the games that, that people should should look at picking up when, the, when they have the uh, revolution. The other reason we wanted to talk about this segment is a lot of times when people talk about the TurboGrafx-16, talk about NEC, because it was kind of the forward-facing company when this console got re- released in America. I was also listening to another podcast, which I, I won't name, and they, they were saying, you know, I don't understand why I was at the GDC, the Game Developers Conference, and they had a banner on the wall that said... Uh, Hudson Soft. What do they have to do with the Turbo Graphics? And to me, that was like amazing that this person who's supposed to be Game Authority and kind of into even retro gaming a bit didn't know what key role uh, Hudson Soft played in in the generation of the Turbo Graphics sixteen and a lot of the games. So we're going to talk about that as well.
0: So Hudson was a major software developer for the Turbo Graphics.
1: Well, they weren't only a, a software developer; that they had their hands in the hardware. So let's kind of talk about what the history of Hudson Soft is, because it's kind of a cool history, I think. It was started by two brothers, Yuji and Hiroshi Kudo, in 1973. Now what's kind of unique about this company is Hiroshi is still the CEO today. So can you name (laughs) any companies where that's the case? Yeah, that's cool. So they initially started in 1973 doing hardware, like amateur radio components hardware, and over time they moved to PC products. They were integrators of software uh, and, and hardware as well. They did games, OSDBs. The break really came, or I guess it was a break, when the Famicom got released in Japan by Nintendo. Which is what we call the NES here. Yeah, exactly. It's the NES. So they believed in it initially when a lot of other companies didn't. And a lot of people don't know this, but Hudson Soft was the first third-party developer for the Famicom in Japan. One of the games that they're probably most uh, noted for is Lode Runner. They did the Load Runner conversion for the NES. I think Broderbund was a company that did it initially. I don't really know what the history is. Broderbund
2: was the publisher originally on the PC, but... I mean, I think they made the game on the PC. It could have. Greatest game of all time. It is one of the greatest games of all time,
1: but uh, Hudson Soft produced that for the NES, and they changed it quite a bit. I don't know if anybody's gone back and played it recently, but it's a really cool-looking game, and it plays great. Uh, They sold 1.2 million units on the NES, so... Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, so... But they were always more than software. Like we say, they, they did amateur radio products, so they were interested in hardware. In the mid-'80s, they developed this LSI game chip system called the C62, which was way superior to anything that NES had. Apparently, NEC heard about this, and they wanted to license this, and that's what became the chip that powers the PC engine, and that was released in 1987.
0: And it was a big hit in Japan.
1: Yeah, huge hit in Japan. I mean, it way outsold NES and Genesis. So, this is everybody in Japan's buying this thing called the PC Engine. It has nothing to do with the PC, but it's a completely gaming console. So, of course, NEC, with this the huge amount of success, they're selling all these games in Japan. They say we should bring this thing to the US. So, in 1989, they introduced the TurboGrafx 16. Uh, to the U.S. Mar- market, which is the U.S. version of the of the PC Engine,
0: and they kind of promoted this as a 16-bit console. Really, it was an 8-bit 6502-based system, but it had a 16-bit graphics chip capable of 512 simultaneous colors.
1: Yeah, it, and it when I got it, I thought it was an, a great-looking system. I mean, the graphics are really sharp and crisp, and and there's no like flicker or slowdown in any of the games I yeah, ever it played looks, on the it Turbo looks very Graphics. Good. So the other thing that they released along with the system was this ability to add this thing called the CD-ROM drive. And Hudson was were the people that actually developed the CD-ROM for NEC for use with the TurboGrafx-16.
0: So that was the first CD-ROM add-on.
1: It's kind of disputed whether it was the first console CD-ROM add-on, but it's the first common console CD-ROM add-on. I don't know what the distinction is, but apparently some other company had been working on it as well for a lesser-known console, but yeah... The
0: TurboGrafx
1: and the CD-ROM, or at least the PC Engine and the CD-ROM, they're kind of known as the first CD-ROM that was available on a console platform.
0: And they also came out with some kind of memory card, right?
1: Well, it was was a card that held the cartridge. They were called Hue cards, obviously after Hudson, I would assume, because they're the people that developed it. And what was kind of cool about it, and we'll talk about it in a bit, is you could also use that card interchangeably with a handheld. And so we'll get to that in a bit. And
2: these were credit card shaped about.
1: Yeah, they're a little bit smaller than a credit card, maybe a bit thicker. So they we're talking really tiny at the time, uh, these tiny sized cartridges. So when it released in the U.S., there were some, quite a few games released uh, for the launch because they had all these uh, this stockpile of Japanese games. But the uh, packing game was Keith Courage in the Alpha Zones, which wasn't a, a huge hit. It was just kind of something they threw in. Not a household name. Not a household name at all. A lot of the Hudson titles were available, like Bonk, which is kind of the Mario of the TurboGrafx-16. And it's a game that I always liked playing. I'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, loadrunner Runner, obviously. Wise, which... Wise just got released for the PSP, so that game's still...
0: Right, still going in that series.
1: uh, Bloody Roar, uh, Dragon Curse, and obviously one of the Hudson's biggest games of all time, Bomberman, was one of the games that was available for the TurboGrafx-16. So some of the other popular ones that were non-Hudson games were like Arrow Blasters, R-Type, Blazing Lasers. The system is really known for its great shooters, like these kind of side-scrolling shooters. Uh, Some of the other games were like Splatterhouse, which kind of a Jason-type game, (laughs) horror-type game, Legendary Axe, and and really good pinball, like Devil and Alien Crush on this platform. But even with all these games and this great CD-ROM technology and this somewhat 16-bit system, it didn't work in the U.S.
0: Why is that? Well, I know for me, this was about the same time that I picked up the Sega Genesis, so I think a lot of people got Genesis or Nintendo instead. You know what's kind of funny about Nintendo is that... uh, a lot of people who are
1: Nintendo fanboys say, you know, Microsoft is evil and Sony is evil because they prevent, you know, people from Nintendo from doing certain things or whatever. But back in the day, Nintendo had this pseudo contract with developers for the NES and they, they actually punished people that produced games for other platforms, they'd give the, given these arbitrary chip shortages around the holiday season. So if they're producing for other platforms, they'd say, well, you know, we're not able to give you the chips you need to produce your games around the holiday season. So <laughs> that was ultimately ruled illegal, but the damage was kind of already done against the TurboGrafx-16 because most of the developers in the U.S. picked to go developed for the NES system because it was had a huge market base. Why would you choose to go for the Turbo Graphics when you already had this huge market base and you want to risk being, uh, you know, Nintendo giving you these shortages? So a lot of what you saw in the U.S. were the Japanese games, really, and little conversion was done to bring them into the U.S. market.
0: And so when the Genesis came along... You know, Genesis came out with games like Altered Beast, which was very cool at the time. It had Sonic the Hedgehog. I think it had games that more Americans wanted to play. Right,
1: and they were able to do that because, of course, Sega is an arcade system. So even though they're a Japanese company, Altered Beast and those games were familiar with U.S. audiences. And Sonic was kind of their own creation. The other thing that a lot of people say the reason that TurboGrafx never took off in the U.S. was because of bad marketing... I think the way that NEC of America marketed it is they they pushed a lot to have advertising in large metropolitan areas and they ignored some of the smaller markets, which may work in Japan but doesn't work really well in the U.S. where you have more uh, diverse uh, distributed population. The other thing is since they were doing these straight conversions from Japanese games, they produced games that weren't really familiar to American gamers. For example, there was a game I remember called JJ and Jeff, and I was like, well, what's JJ and <laughs> Jeff? What, what does that have to do with anything? And it was really kind of a crazy game. But Apparently, it was a conversion of some Japanese comic, but they changed the names to JJ and Jeff. <laughs> and it just didn't really work. So they didn't spend a lot of time doing these conversions. And what I kind of find funny about this is it seems... That uh, we've seen this before, or even recently, where a a system that's really popular in one country, they try to go to another country and sell it, but they're not able to do it because the games aren't made for that particular audience. Can you think of...
0: uh, It sounds kind of like the Xbox 360. It's exactly like... the original
1: Xbox. It's exactly the same. So it's kind of funny. People say... Well, we'd buy that system if it was reversed, but apparently we didn't, because we had the opportunity with the TurboGrafx-16, we had these games come over that were very Japanese in style, and was hugely popular in Japan, but we basically ignored it.
0: And the box art, too, was Japanese. Right, Right, they never did any conversion on that. Right, and
2: that was before anime became popular, so I think that scared people.
0: Right,
1: a lot of the box art was boring, it's weird. Sort sort of simple, and it looked a lot different than what you saw on, on NES or even Genesis.
0: So then they came out with a couple other pieces of hardware.
1: The Turbo Express was released in 1990, and we kind of touched on that earlier. It had a 2.6-inch screen with a sh- very sharp color display. And what was really cool is it's the first system that I know of where you could take the console cartridges, those Hue cards, and plug them directly into the handheld. Yeah, that's great. But the system costs like 249 to 299 So again, it was very expensive and not something that anybody could pick up. They also added this TurboVision capability to it so you could watch television on this handheld device in addition to playing games, <laughs> which was pretty cool. It almost sounds like they're trying what they're trying to do with the PSP. Right, yeah. So they were well ahead of their time. They also had the ability to do a link to player play with uh, with handhelds linked together. So after the TurboGrafx-16 has, had kind of failed and lost the Genesis... Uh, they came out, Turbo Technologies took over, it replaced NEC Home Electronics in the U.S., which was the people that initially did the TurboGrafx-16 and the, and the CD-ROM device and the Turbo Express, and came out with something in 1992 called the Turbo Duo. And that combined the TurboGrafx-16, an enhanced version of the CD-ROM drive, all into one unit. So you could just buy that, and it came with uh, Wise 1 and 2, uh, Bonk's Adventure and Revenge, Gates of Thunder, Bomberman, and uh, a random Hue card. So in 1994, an interesting thing is that uh, they introduced this tr- Johnny Turbo comic ad that was mocking Sega, and I guess it's it's come to be sort of a, uh, a camp, kind of like yeah, like a campy thing, almost like all your base uh, belong to us. Uh, that's kind of the way people look back and think about these Johnny Turbo comic ads. It was they were, so bad, it was good. And this system was sort of a niche success, this Turbo Duo, but it really was too expensive again for the common common person to play. It was it wasn't for the casual gamer, it was too expensive. So, what are some of our memories, I guess, of the of the Graphics 16?
0: Well, there's Bonk and, you know, for those of you who haven't played the game, it's this side-scrolling platformer and you're this sort of bald-headed little kid who goes around and attacks things with his head. And for me, like I just picture kids with too much caffeine and sugar playing this game, getting all hyped up, and then going just headbutting everything in the world. I Sounds like the story of my childhood.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the interesting
1: thing is that if you played the initial original Mario's, I mean, those are great games. But when I played Bonk on the Turbo Graphics, it had a lot of things that I didn't see in Mario. Like I don't know if you if you've played it to the part where like you can be bonk and you suck into this little tube and float around and it randomly picks where you spit out. So there's like all these tubes that you have to jump into. You can jump and do spins, you know, with your head, you know, like spinning real fast, catching air. So there's and he can like chew on the side of walls and climb up the walls with his yeah, I like teeth. Yeah,
0: like the facial expression, yeah, when he, when he chews on stuff. And it's his great.
1: head can get enormously large. You can get these power ups, right, right. and it's a really fun game. I really remember playing Bonk a ton, and I love that game. Some of the other games I played, uh, Splatterhouse, which was sort of a horror type game, had a character, it was like Jason, who would walk around like chopping people up. It was great. <laughs> uh, Dragon Curse, which was a very Japanese type um, title where it was an adventure type game, but it was very anime kind of looking, little tiny character. Uh, but again, it's something the American audience maybe didn't appreciate. And then there were kind of arcade conversions like Vigilante. I remember the Turbo Express and Turbo Vision. I always wanted those, but could never get them. And for me, I liked the Japanese style boxes. I thought they were very cool. So the real question is, when the Revolution comes out and has this virtual console, what games do we want to want to see on it?
0: Well, Street Fighter. Well, yeah,
1: that's the interesting thing. Is this Turbo Graphics is an 8-bit console, and it's you know, and it's compared to the Genesis and SNES. And if you have seen the Street Fighter 2 for the, the TurboGrafx, it is so much better <laughs> than the Street Fighter 2 on either the SNES or Genesis. It's amazing. So it's really funny to me that the system that's 8-bit with a 16-bit graphics processor can do a game that's better than the SNES or Genesis. But it's true for Street Fighter 2. So that's the one of the ones I really want to see when they do this TurboGrafx uh support.
0: And there's also a game called Dracula X, which is basically Castlevania.
1: Yeah, it's one of the first Castlevania games. And if you search online, it's amazing how many hits you'll come up with. People that say this is the greatest Castlevania ever. It's better than anything that came out on the PlayStation. So I really hope that they're going to go ahead and put that. But it is a CD game. I'm not sure if they're going to support those on, on the Revolution, but I'd love to see it.
0: Yeah, that would be great.
1: Obviously, Bomberman as well. i love to play Bomberman's that. Bomberman's a classic. And then all the shooters that 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 were R type. R type blazing lasers, uh, Arrow Blasters, all those games would be awesome to play again. So hopefully Nintendo's gonna put those on, on the revolution. Alright, so what we have coming up next is the second half of the Kurt Vendel interview. Uh, he's the guy again who did the flashback too, and is is the uh, main man when it comes to the dot com. So he's going to talk a bit about that. But before we get to that, we wanted to uh, kind of put out a plug to uh, to get our podcast, uh, plea, pop- if
2: you will,
0: popularity up. If you like our podcast, tell your friends, and also if you listen to us through iTunes, go to iTunes and give us some feedback on the podcast. Give us a rating, please. No,
2: no, actually, we don't care if you like it. Just go there and <laughs> don't say what you really think. Just give us great ratings, please.
1: And also visit uh, yahoo.podcast.com. There's a couple things you can do there to help us out. If you subscribe, that will take our subscriber count up so we'll get a higher hit rate so we'll get other subscribers. We can continue bringing you these excellent interviews. Please provide comments, give us a rating, and add some keywords to our podcast as well. That will all help us kind of move up the chain on yahoo.podcast.com and as always please visit our forums uh, as you saw this episode if you post in the forums there's a high likelihood that we're going to mention it on the on the next podcast or some of the upcoming podcasts so uh, if you guys would please get on there we want to have it more interactive than it's been so uh, so give it a shot on to the interview Weren't you also involved in the development of the Flashback Two? Weren't you responsible for designing one of the chips?
3: Right. I, I, it's, it's actually uh, I, I worked on the what's called VHDL. It's, it's it's a it's a hardware language that you actually write hardware, and, and, and that becomes the 2600 chip. And then what they ended up doing was we actually uh, put a couple of other technologies together and incorporated into design and. and Added on a couple of them are, uh, are was one of them was actually called Gizmo, which is uh, the menuing chip. Uh, a lot of people scratched their head when the, when they first started seeing just the menu shots of the Flashback 2, because they're like, you know, Flashback 2 can't do graphics like that. How are you going to do a big flashy graphic menu like that? Well, we actually put um, an extra chip that handled the handled the 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 menuing and also handled the memory management. Actually. Um, uh, banked in the games into into the 2600 chip, so we actually put in a couple of extra uh, technologies into it. So the the reason, you know, and then, and then of course the whole reason why the chip became you know, the chip and the console were codenamed Michelle is because uh, you know it was my work on the chip and it was my work on the project. So uh, it was kind of an old Atari custom. Again, putting a lot of the heart and soul back into an Atari product was uh, generally the product manager's wife girlfriend or whomever, uh, usually their name was chosen uh, in the product. So um, my wife, Michelle, uh, her name actually it was actually trained directly onto the board inside the uh, console.
1: So the Flashback 2 has been out a while now, and as we talked about earlier, it's been really successful. And seems to have a broad appeal uh, for people like myself that were around back when the twenty six hundred was out, as well as even kids today find the games entertaining. So, if you had to go back and do it again, is there anything you would have changed uh, about the development of the Flashback Two?
3: Anything I would have changed, I, I would have liked to have uh, instead of really focusing on the core assets that we were we were directed to. I think I would have liked to. I, I would have liked a little bit more time and control um, before we went to final masking because the the engineers. Um, they're great guys they they, 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 don't, they don't ever do anything that's that's wrong. They always do things that they feel are better or they're trying to help improve things. Well, right. there was a small issue where they actually thought that uh, uh, there was a bug or an issue in having all of the the lines on the the, the, the screen, um, which you're involved with with a lot of programmers you know are familiar with the H moves um, they actually removed, uh, they actually mashed out the H-Move and it ended up causing some issues with a lot of games and a lot of compatibility issues because, uh, a lot of games, uh, they, 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 you know, a lot of programmers have used some very, very, uh, unique tricks in the hardware to eke out, you know, graphics and performance right. and gameplay, which the console was just never designed to do. And, and you know, in doing so, of course, you know, any, any, time you, you, you fiddle with the hardware, you can, you know, wind up, you know, knocking out a huge chunk of games, and, you know, there's, there's to date, I think there's about, you know, 12 or 15 games, which just, you know, will never run on flashback, too, and it, it's kind of a shame, because, you know, while you say to yourself, well, gee, there's about 1,200 games, tw- you know, for the 2,600, you know, twelve fifteen wow, it's, you know, uh, 1%, so it's not that, not that big of a deal, well you know a lot of these are some of the more popular games so it's kind of a shame that there are certain games that won't run on a flashback too so i, I would have liked a little bit more time but uh... you know when you when you're when you're you're pushing a product out to market and you've got to you know you've got to be involved in uh, you know hundreds of, of different facets of it from from you know the the plastic design the texturing the cosmetics the label the buttons the colors the mechanicals, uh, you know uh, the, the games, the menu, packaging, uh, you know, shipping, weight. I mean, is, there's so many different things that make up a product and you're, you're going at the speed of panic to take all of these individual things yeah. which have never existed before, have never been mated together before, and now you've got to start plugging them all together and you've got to make sure that all the pieces in the puzzle fit. And, you know, unfortunately, there's always going to be a little thing that, that will not, uh, get 101% of the attention it needs and it may only get that 99% and unfortunately that 99% will be passed on.
1: So one of the nicer aspects of the Flashback 2 for me is the fact that there's a lot of different types of games on there. There's skill games, there's space games, there's like thinking games. So how did you guys come up with that list of games and also were all of the Atari titles for the 2600 available for putting on the Flashback 2?
3: Well, no. I... Uh, you know this. This is a, this is a new company. It's it's you know it's ten years or more past the you know actually I guess we're looking at you know about maybe thirteen years since the last official 2600 probably rolled off an assembly line uh, back in '92 was when they they you know more or less uh, shut things down. So you you lose the licenses. So now Atari only owns its own licenses. Um, I have uh, I have some very uh, Good friends over at Activision, and I thought, uh, what more fitting, uh, than the rebirth of the 2600 than to bring in, uh, some Activision games. So, uh, I got Atari's licensing, uh, division and Activision's licensing division together, and, you know, we were on a series of conference calls, and, uh, originally I wanted, I wanted Pitfall and I wanted Mega Mania, um, on there, and it was chosen Pitfall and River Raid, uh, as the final two games. So I mean, Pitfall in itself. I mean, of course, you know, is, is more is probably the the second most universally recognized uh, game, probably next to Pac-Man. So um, it was it was a, it was you know it was a must-have choice to, to put a third-party game on to the console and make sure Pitfall was there. Uh, but the rest of the games, we it went through a process of we had I think if I'm remembering correctly, it was um, I'm going to say it was 64 or 68. Atari-owned uh, 2,600 games, and then they were all broken down into their various categories. Uh, then we went back and looked at Flashback 1, we looked at the Jack Joystick, the paddle, so on and so forth, and we had to decide, okay, let's, let's try not to overlap uh, games as much as possible, unless it's really a, you know, a sort of a must-have game. So, you know, a couple of games, uh, like like Haunted House, I mean, we, we, we had Haunted House, the original one, but we brought it over, we had Adventure, we brought that over only because we were going to do sequels, uh, we wanted those there, uh, we brought Saboteur over because it was, you know, it, it, it hasn't seen much playtime, so, you know, it's, it, was an, it was an unreleased prototype, even though uh, unofficially it's been floating around the net for a couple of years, as far as Atari officially releasing it. It's You know, it's been the first time Atari ever did it with Flashback 1. Uh, it's a great game. You know, Howard Scott Washer did an incredible job with that. Uh, so, you know, that was a must-have to bring over. And then, you know, a couple of other choices were done. Instead of, uh, we, you know, we, we put Solaris on the Flashback 2. It, 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 I mean, a Flashback 1. It would have been nice to carry it over to Flashback 2, but we chose to put on, uh, what is it, uh, Sky, Sky, not Sky Raider, um... Um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank there, but we, we, put on the Solaris variation that, uh, that Neubauer, uh, did, um, uh, onto the console, and then, uh, we started to look at the different games. We, we, you know, it's, it's important to look at the target audience. We're gonna have kids that, this may be the first game console they're ever gonna cut their teeth on. So we want simple games. And you put on 3D Tic-Tac-Toe, you put on Hangman, you put on Maze Craze, um... Skydiver and a couple of others that are, that are really, uh, easy to play and, and, can be fun for them. They put on a couple of simple skill set games like video chess, video checkers, uh, and then started to build up. Of course, you know, getting in the old favorites, getting in the asteroids and the missile command and, and, uh, Centipede and stuff like that. You know, you want to get the, 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 the arcade standbys. And then going on to some other games that, uh, you know, a lot of people haven't seen around in a long time. You know, Fatal Run and, uh, you know, like, like I say, a couple of other titles that uh, people just haven't Dodge seen. Him. So it was Dodge'em, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's funny, we actually had, we had Dodge'em, no, we had Maze Craze at E3 in, our, in one of the prototypes. And it was funny, right? It amazed me how many times people went to play Maze Craze instead of playing, say, Centipede or playing Missile Command. That, that was an interesting thing to kind of walk away from was that, um, people really do like Head-to-head games. Like, Outlaw has been a very, very popular game. Uh, the new arcade pong. Um, surprisingly, uh, I actually had a couple of um, magazine editors came back and they said, you know, my, my kids they they still play it. He walks by living room while but not only are they still playing the flashback too. He thought they would have been bored with it, you know, after a couple of weeks or, or a month or so. Kids are still playing it, and they and he keeps walking by. And he says the favorite game yeah. they love. They love pong. Because it it drives them nuts. They 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 love playing it. I'm like, that's really really interesting to to hear that. Um, But people really seem to like to play head-to-head games. They they they. It's great to play against the computer, but it's a lot more fun when you can really go at it with your best friend or your girlfriend or your wife or husband. Or you know, uh, you have that direct challenge. You've got a real person you're going at it with. I I guess that's kind of why you know these whole. you know these massive multiplayer online uh, games p- do well because you know you're 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 not just going against you know uh, a, a mindless routine that's running on a computer. You're playing against somebody else. You got somebody else who's going to keep changing and they they randomize a lot more. And, you know, and if it's a friend of yours that's on the other side of the country or the other side of the world, and you're able to get online and play with them, you know, once a night or once every weekend or whatever it happens to be, that that's kind of a great thing. And I think that's what. A, Appeals to people here, you know, locally in the same room is, you know, hey, how cool is it to plug in a pair of paddles and four friends can play, you know, head to head Warlords and go at it? I mean, you know, you, you, could, you could end up playing that game, you know, through the night. I mean, that's why you still today have Warlord tournaments because it's just such a popular game to have four people battling it out on, on, on one video screen head to head. It's just a great game. And then, you know, there's very few things out there that um can really compete against that i i think the only game i can really say today that has that right kind of formula that makes people really want to go sort of head to head is something like dance dance revolution i mean really think about it you're 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 using your skills and you're going head to head or you're going toe to toe i guess um against the person next to you um to do the patterns then to get faster and then to get a good rhythm going and it's Probably a very very um, you know more active way yeah. of sort of playing pong against another person you're 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 playing live against another person you're competing head to head and I think that's something that maybe video games are kind of missing today is is you don't get that much. Head to head. I, I know my friends and I, any opportunity, you know, to go to go to an arcade, if we see some old Daytona machines, man, we're jumping on those seats. Nothing nothing beats a good round of Daytona and going head to head with your friends on, on you know, on three, four, five, eight machines, you know, going, going, you know, crazy with one another. And of course, one, one jackass always has to turn around and go backwards, get <laughs> a little way on the track. <laughs> it's mentioned to you. But that, that's what I mean. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's all about people being able to interact and play with one another um, with the video games. And it seems like that that really is what draws people, and that's why a game like Space Craze uh, has such a strong draw.
1: So are there any other projects that you're currently working on for Atari at this time? And uh, is there going to be a Flashback 3?
3: Um, you know, Atari has not indicated to myself or my team uh, that they want us to pursue uh, some additional uh, retro or even, you know, middle class, uh, console designs at this time. But we, we, we do have, you know, a couple of things that were cooked up in, in, in the labs, uh, here in New York and over in, uh, in, in Hong Kong. And, you know, we, we, we do have a portable, uh, unit and we do have, you know, the beginnings of a Flashback 3 unit. But, uh, you know, these were, these were kind of tinkering around projects. There was nothing, you know, official that, that Atari had, had issued or something. So, um, right now they're kind of they're kind of just hanging out just point waiting for someone to uh you know say let's give it a go uh myself and a few people have discussed the possibility of uh taking what's been done with Flashback 3 and either turning it into a small uh private or community project so that 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 has some possibility to it um, and the fact that Atari had released uh to me the permission to publicly uh, uh release the uh the the uh, 8-bit chipset, which was going to be what well, was going to power uh, Flashback 3, they, all, they allowed me to publish that into the public domain. Um, would allow you know a p- public project like this, a community project, to come together. So it, it has some possibilities, but uh, there's a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of negativity to trying to do a uh, community project only because you, you have a lot of people with great ideas and a lot of people with wish lists and a lot of people with enthusiasm. But it's very difficult to harness, uh, direct control a lot of that and, and put it into a, a positive avenue that produces, uh, a product. So, it's still kind of up in the air right now on the consoles. I'm, I'm, I'm doing some other things from some other companies that, uh, that I can't talk about right now, but there are some other, uh, uh, little, uh entry, you know, I, I really don't like the, 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 to consider anything that, that my firm has worked on is plug-and-plays. You know, I, I look at plug-and-plays as the gimmicky joysticks. I look at what we did for, you know, for, for, for example, Atari. These are really entry-level video gaming consoles because they are consoles. They're, they're not, um, you know, a controller with, you know, uh, a dozen buttons, you know, sandwiched in wherever there's some free space that are running on batteries. We, we've we created consoles. These, these have, you know, detachable right. controllers that can be interchanged. They, they run on AC wall sockets. Uh, even though they're not expandable, they've got a fixed set i uh, i i really look at this as as this is an entry level gaming uh market um, and i'm continuing that with with uh with another firm we were actually uh working on on a product line that's actually you know uses you know pc keyboards and stuff so there there's there's some possibilities out there for some further uh entry level uh game consoles i'm I'm hoping uh this will this will continue um and then, you know we'll, we'll see what happens on on the console market and i You know, my my firm's actually heavily involved uh, with some other things right now that are not console-based but are still video game-based.
1: So in addition to the Flashback 2, you also run AtariMuseum.com, and you're the founder of the Atari Historical Society. So for those of our listeners who may not know, can you explain what those are and what your involvement is in them?
3: Well, Atari Museum uh, actually uh, came about from a very long history back, back to '86. Um, and originally it was the Star Trek DBS, it was devoted to Star Trek, which I was very heavily into uh, back then, and then uh, it it, tr- it came the, the Earth Access Center uh, for Atari history and information, and what I was doing was I was kind of bridging in information uh, that I would glean from CompuServe, that I would glean from Atari's own official corporate DBS and then uh, anything off of the other bulletin boards and was kind of calling it all together and then, uh, presenting information and history. And I was actually, uh, I went out and bought a fax machine because, you know, people would want to know what, uh, what a document, you know, could could I show them an original document? Could I show them an original photo? So, you know, before being able to email photos and stuff like that, uh, you know, I was faxing over photos or, you know, taking photos of equipment and actually having the film developed and mailing it out to people. And they would, you know, pay for the film development and, and the postage costs and stuff. And um, I guess about 90 or so uh, got real heavily involved with work and uh, getting a lot of my engineering degrees. I'm, I'm a computer computer science uh, major with uh, I can't even remember how many uh, additional engineering certificates uh, I, I put together. But and I started really focusing on on work and my hobby kind of uh, took a wayside for a couple of years. So. Uh, the bulletin board went down, and then '94, um, I decided to start walking back around into the the Atari scene, and uh, discovered the wonderful World Wide Web, and put up a, a real real bad one page you know AOL uh, website, and then uh, got a domain. I actually uh, I got this domain. I don't even remember where it was from. It was like some off the wall island in the Caribbean or something so it was this real funky designation I don't even remember what the last designation of but I got the you know the Atari name and I was running uh, prototypes of yeah. vaporware so it was kind of this sort of uh, narrow uh, showcase of, of, of Atari unreleased stuff and then um, I decided you know I wanted to get back into the way that things were from the bulletin board data so um, I started building up the site started uh, putting up photos and AVI movies sound bites documents that I was turning into PDFs or I was you know, turning into GIF files or whatever it was, uh, starting to, starting to put up stuff from engineering notebooks and, and, uh, schematics, mechanical drawings, whatever, whatever I have. And this kind of kept going from, from, I guess maybe 94, 95, uh, up until today. And, you know, now I'm sitting on the server with, uh, I don't know, with, I, I, I haven't done an, I haven't done a, uh, really comprehensive uh, inventory of what's on the website at this particular time. But I know la- last count it was in the seven or eight hundred megabytes of, of, of information, and uh, it was across something like twelve hundred pages. So uh, the, the site has just really grown, and it, it keeps growing, and it, it doesn't stop. I mean, I, I I would like to devote more time and work to it than that I used to. Um, it's been kind of tough, but you know, I do take a you know a, a night or two out here and there, and I do update the photos or correct things uh, I get emails from from or engineers and, and and managers occasionally they're like hey Kurt you know stop by the site still up that's great um by the way I remembered something and you know let me let me let me get this package over to you or hey you know we just we we we're, we were getting ready to move and wouldn't you know it I just found a whole bunch of boxes of stuff and you know uh if you pay for the postage you'll get it and you know it, it's it's an ongoing you know it's it's a it's a living the living entity, I guess you kind of consider, because it is it is ongoing, it's maturing, and it, you know corrections keep getting added to it, and and uh, information keeps getting expanded upon, and it's it's really it, it, it kind of surprises me, because I, I keep thinking I, I know what there is and I know what there was, and I feel that I've I've kind of separated myth from fact, and sure enough, I'll go through a filing cabinet, and some time or another, I'll find something which you know. Uh, debunk some, you know, debunk a myth or actually reveal that, you know, a legend was, was true. I mean, recently I found, uh, documents on an, on an unknown project which I had always thought was just myth and rumor, which was a sister project to the 1200XL computer, uh, the Sweet 16 project called the CX1000 and sure enough I've actually found the original, uh, circuit board, uh, diagrams for it and, uh, you know, just, and never I really had it, and the funny thing was, it was actually buried in a, in a sub envelope inside a bigger envelope, uh, in an unrelated product. So, I mean, you know, I'm sitting on over 14,000 documents right now, and I've got, I don't know how many tubes of drawings. I've got, you know, I, like I said, I, I own three Atari mainframes, and I've got, you know, loads and loads of mainframe tapes I'm still, uh, recovering and, and, and working on, and, and uh, even, funky discs that I've yet to to, uh, gain access to. So, I mean, there's still a lot more research and a lot more history. Um, You know, hopefully over the next year or so, uh, I'm going to wind up with a little bit more free time. Uh, I'm hoping to kind of turn the reins over to to someone else so that I can kind of sit back and and actually... Go back to have a free time and having a life again. So, uh, that, that, that would, that would, that would certainly be nice. And if I, you know, could wind up having this free time again, I know most certainly I'm going to devote a lot more time to going back and doing more research and, and presenting more stuff on, 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 uh, on Atari Museum. Um, I guess the final thing was you, you mentioned about, uh, the Atari Circle Society. Well, that, that kind of, that kind of came about, I don't know, maybe 70, 97, 98. On the phone, I, I would host these uh, these conference bridges with a bunch of former Atari people. If I couldn't uh, make a trip out to California to take everybody out for dinner or lunch and hang out and have a get together, I'd have these conference calls, and I don't know, four or five of us on a call one one night, and. Uh, you know, it's, it's very light, lighthearted. Everybody's joking around and, you know, sort of, uh, ribbing each other and exchanging jokes and stuff. And, you know, cause these guys, you know, they haven't, they haven't spoken with each other in years. So they always love it if I can manage to pull them all together so they can talk with each other. And, um, you know, one guy would go, you know, uh, damn, I wish I kept that. Well, Kurt's probably got it. And another guy would be like, you know, uh, I wish we could figure out what the heck's there. Kurt, you, you got that someplace, right? And, you know, I'd go and I'd, I'd rummage around and come back and I'm like, i like, oh, see, Kurt has it. And, um, one, one, I forget who it was, one guy commented, he's like, well, Kurt's become sort of the, the, the officially underofficial curator of all that is Atari. And another person goes. Well, I guess we're like we're the Atari, we're the Atari Society here. you you know, and he's the historical guy, so I guess we're the, the Historical Society. And that kind of stuck, and you know, we kind of started having these official conference calls and roundtables of the Atari Historical Society, and eventually the website uh, took on the moniker, and that's how it kind of became. I mean, there's, you know, there's input now. I I don't know. There's there's got to be input from four or five hundred people that at one point or another, either by email, letter, phone call, meeting in person, have contributed one thing or another or still contribute today uh, to the website. And it, it really is. It's a society of, of former Atarians who've all come together to, to share their experiences and to, to pull together what is the history of Atari. And that really is the Atari Historical Society. All right, well,
1: that concludes our interview with Kurt Vendel. I want to thank him once again for coming on our podcast and talking about the Atari Flashback 2, atarimuseum.com, and the Atari Historical Society. And I want to urge everybody out there to go ahead and pick up a Flashback 2 for only $29.99, or even cheaper if you can find them on sale. It's an amazing machine. Uh, I can't believe they got it at that price point, and it really brings back the memories of those uh, retro and classic days. Some of the music provided in the show was from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You can check them out at music.podshow.com. We'll see you in two weeks.